Well, good morning. It is time for our kids to head off to Children's Bible Hour. And we'll sing them out with... Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you, some other to win. Fight manfully onward, dark passions subdue. Look ever to Jesus, he will carry you through, so why don't you ask the Savior to help you, comfort, strengthen, and keep you, he is willing to aid you, he will carry you through. If you want to grab your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 2. We'll be looking this morning, reading verses 18 through 22, as we continue to work our way through this book of assurance. This is designed to give us the comfort of knowing that we abide in the Savior and the strength that we need to continue to overcome the world. And both that comfort and strength comes from the Father, through Christ, by the Spirit. 1 John chapter 2. Let us read verses 18 through 22. Hear now the word of the true and living God. Children. It is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all know. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Let us pray. Lord God, you know there is so much misinformation, so much fog out there concerning the identity of the Antichrist. We pray that through the sword of your word, we would be able to cut through that fog and see clearly what John was communicating in his day, what it means for us today as well. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. There is a ton of of literature on the Antichrist. I'm especially mindful of Tim LaHaye's series, the Left Behind series that was popular years ago. And that thing will fill up a bookshelf. It's, I think it's like 10 or 12 volumes. Uh, it is based on 
a particular way of reading and understanding prophetic literature. And in his fictionalized account of the end of everything, his Antichrist is named Nikolai Carpathia. Carpathia rises to a position of prominence, of world power, and he is the Antichrist. And that's usually how, in film and fiction, the Antichrist is portrayed. This kind of shadowy figure who's going to rise to political power. And once gaining that power, uh, then you're really going to see some things after that. If you will, notice again. Verse 18 of 1 John 2. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist has come, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Come with me to chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 of 1 John By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Turn a few more pages over to 2 John, just a little New Testament postcard. 2 John, notice verse 7. 2 John, verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. John may be leaning into the language that our Lord used, albeit uh, the way Jesus describes it, a little different than the way John describes it. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 24, Uh, Jesus here foretelling the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And one of the things that he mentions in Matthew 24, verse 24, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You have just read and heard read in your presence everything the Bible says about Antichrist. Um, there's all that political intrigue and you know all these these kind of shadowy mysterious figures. What ends up happening uh, with that particular reading of prophetic literature is other texts are then pulled to the forefront. Daniel nine, Second Thessalonians two, a bunch of stuff in the Revelation, and then all of that is kind of uh, conflated and and pressed together to form this mold of, again, a shadowy, mysterious political figure who rises to power, who will have everybody bow down and worship him, and he's going to set up an idol and establish a a one-world government. It it may be out of a revived European Union, but I don't know, given Brexit and all that. um, It simply is not, though, what John wrote. And it's not what's presented in the New Testament. The lesson this morning is entitled, What the Bible Really Says About the Antichrist. And again, you've read everything that there is about the Antichrist. There are distinctive marks of an Antichrist. And indeed, the first thing I want you to notice is that John recognizes that there are many Antichrists. 
we're not just waiting on one guy. John says that there, there are many. And, and, and the word itself, antichrist, means one who is opposed to Christ. And we'll work through those distinctive markers in just a moment. But again, many. John recognizes there are, there's a bunch of them. And then also I want you to notice the timestamp for this. You heard they were coming. John says, they're already here. And he, he writes in the first century, all those many years ago, to Christians in his day. And he says, many antichrists are already here. What are those distinctive markers of antichrist? Well, uh, again, first of all, the, the word itself means one who is opposed to Christ. And in John's particular context, we've talked about some of the various isms that were popular in John's day. One of them was Gnosticism, and, and that would come to full bloom uh, a few decades in the future. But already there's this first wave of uh, early or, or proto-Gnostic thinking. These guys who claim to have some kind of ethereal experience, and therefore they've been enlightened, and, and they have this particular special knowledge. Good news, you can come to me and I'll share it with you. Probably for a nominal fee. Here's what one early Christian theologian quoting these guys said that they would say. These, these enlightened ones, they would say, We alone of all men are Christians who complete the mystery at the third portal and are anointed there with a speechless anointing. You think that has any bearing upon what John writes here? When he says, you have an anointing from the Holy One? You had these Gnostic teachers running around going, I have the, you don't have the anointing. Uh, you know, it's, but it's okay, I do. And so you can come to me and I'll, and John says, no, no, no. No, Christian, you have an anointing from the Holy One. These distinctive markers have to do with their teaching. What they were teaching, and it was, it was a message that they were communicating. It was a false gospel, a, a false truth that really is no truth at all. And we see it, we hear it in verse 22 of 1 John 2. They deny Jesus is the Christ. They were making a distinction between Jesus the man and Christ the spirit that came and overtook the man Jesus for a time. This, was, this is an adoptionistic type of understanding where the, the man, Jesus, in his consciousness kind of went unconscious, and then the Christ spirit was active for those three-plus years of Jesus' ministry. And, and what happens is when Jesus is dying on the cross, you remember when he's dying on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, actually what happened, what's happening there is the Christ spirit is leaving, and now here's the man, Jesus, kind of waking up after being unconscious for those three years, going, what happened? Where, where is that in the gospel again? No, that Jesus is the Christ. The Jesus that the apostles knew is the Christ. And there's no you know, distinguishing and, and dividing of the identity of Jesus as the Christ. They're one and the same. By the way, that's important because certain liberal theologians in the past cent century have come up with similar adoptionistic ideas. Frederick Schleiermacher is one of them uh, who, who uh, came up with this adoptionistic idea that, that Jesus was a man who 
that just lived a, a God-conscious life. And, and he, he had this God-consciousness in everything that he did. And what Schleiermacher's doing there is he's dividing, again, parsing between the identity of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is not the God-man, according to Schleiermacher. He's just a God-conscious man. That is not the Jesus that the apostles knew. The more things change, the more they stay the same. There are still these guys out here running around promoting these false notions about Christ. It hasn't gone away. Why we still need what John said all these years ago. It's just as relevant as tomorrow, even for us today. Also, part of their teaching was they denied, as a result of denying that Jesus is the Christ, they denied the Father and the Son. You cannot slight the Son and expect the Father to go, well, you know, we're all good anyway. No, to, to say that Jesus is not the Christ is not just a, a denial of the Son. It's a denial of the Father who sent the Son. And indeed, how can you, how can you distort the picture of Jesus who came to show us the Father and then have a clear idea of who the Father is? It doesn't work that way. And here's John confronting that. Over in chapter 4 and verse uh, 3, again, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. What, what is, what is the, the teaching there? They do not confess that Jesus came in the flesh, that Jesus has come in the flesh. A denial of his humanity, and there were those who did that. They were, uh, the proper idea is doceticism. And, and that had to do with Jesus. He only seemed to have a body of flesh. He was more a spirit being. Didn't leave footprints in the seashores, the sands of Galilee, and all that. And, and again, part of that is rooted in a, a philosophy which made a distinction between matter and spirit. And spirit can have nothing to do with matter because matter is evil. Spirit is good. And so Jesus, he only seemed to have a body of flesh. Well, what, what happens then to the atonement? Have we talked about this? If you deny that Jesus was 100% fully human, how can he die according to the, his human nature on the cross for sins? He cannot. Oh, so we see when, we, when, when these guys start saying these false ideas, it has massive implications for the gospel. Again, when you start denying that Jesus that John and the apostles knew, you end up with a, a false gospel. And so John, he is... Very serious about this, and, and he is identifying the deceptive markers of these false teachers. And indeed, that's what John says uh, when you get to Second John and verse 7. They are deceivers. Many deceivers have gone out, and these are the deceivers, the antichrists, that John is talking about here. There are other similar notions that pop up even in our day. There are those who refuse to acknowledge the Godhood of Jesus. They do not confess that God came in the flesh. And so Jesus is reduced to a mere human, maybe a, a good teacher. This might be where maybe a, an atheist or an agnostic might fall, but a similar idea creeps into even certain uh, so-called strands of Christianity. Jesus, he's a, he's a good man, a wise teacher, but certainly not God in the flesh. 
is usually rooted in an anti-supernatural view of uh, understanding of the world. One writer put it this way, to reduce Jesus to the status of a mere man or to allow no more than a temporary indwelling of some divine power in him is to strike at the root of Christianity. Modern thinkers may have more refined ways of stating similar denials of the reality of the Incarnation. It may be doubted whether they are any more immune to John's perception that they take the heart out of Christianity. And that's really what this boils down to. The removal of the very heart of Christianity. A distorted understanding. A a distorted view of who Jesus really is. You start messing with the identity of Jesus, it has dire consequences for the Christian faith. John and the apostles understood this. And it's why he's so careful to, to write to He calls them children, a a, a term of endearment. Aged John, the the apostle, the elder, the shepherd in the Lord's church, seeking to guide the sheep in the way that they should go. And he says that, yes, you've heard the Antichrist has come. There are many Antichrists who have come. But notice verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Someone has called this verse the blessing of apostasy. And maybe you even hear that and it's like, oh, apostasy, how can there be any blessing in this? Well, number one, these antichrists, those who are opposed to the pure doctrine of the gospel. They went out. And and John here is indicating, yeah, and it became plain, they're not of us. You see, when the Antichrist, those who are opposed to Christ, who bring with them this false gospel, when they go out, that's a blessing to the church. Because what remains is the purity of the gospel. But second, and it's kind of a, a dark verse because it does have to do with these apostates going away and, and what that means for them eternally. But notice in the midst of this darkness, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, during the day, you, you can't see the stars in the sky, right? Because it's so bright, right? You need the night to see the stars. And sometimes the brightest stars appear when the night is the darkest, And it's against this dark backdrop of these apostates going out uh, from the church that one of the the gloriously brilliant gems of of the truth of God comes out. You see, John says, if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. Do you hear the glory of this truth? What does it mean to be of us, as John understands it? Well, it's, it's to belong to the church, right? And what does it mean, then, who do we belong to, in other words? We'll come to chapter 5 and verse 19 of 1 John. And John says there, we know that we are, literally it's of God. You see, if you are of us, of the church, that means you are of God. That you you belong to Him. Uh, When we get to chapter 3, John's really going to drill down into uh, being born of God. That's part of the idea as well. That you are from or of God. And so when John here is writing that they would have been of us, 
but they weren't of us. That means they were not of God. So then what was their source? Where did they come from? Well, the contrast that will be, uh, that, that will really come to the forefront again in chapter 3 is that there are those who are of the devil. That error, that, that, that lies, that it has its or, those have their origin in the very pit of hell with the devil himself, not with God. That's the dividing line. That one of the blessings is that, that truth can be truly seen for what it is and falsehood exposed for what it is. That's a good thing when that distinction is made. Again, another blessing even of the apostasy of these antichrists. But also the blessing is the realization that we will continue. Those who are of God will remain with Him. And, and I really want the force of this to come home to you. Remaining is, a, is the same word that we saw earlier in chapter 1 and chapter 2 about abiding. That to remain with us, with the church, is to abide with God. It's communion language. It's fellowship language. This is one of the strongest statements of assurance that John has in this epistle. And if you are of us, that means you're of God. And if you are of God, you will continue. You will, you will remain. Not only with us, but that also means you will remain with Him. Wow. Our fellowship will continue. With one another and with God. Our communion will continue with one another and with God. That's the, the glorious truth that is embedded in this verse. Again, it, it, it's a very dark verse. They, they went out. They, they were apostates. They left us, and it, it became manifest. They were not of us. But make no mistake that if you are of us, you are of God, and if you are of God, you will continue. You will remain. You will abide. Verse 20 talks about that anointing, and, and a lot can be said about the anointing, and it shows up again in verse 27, and, and so we're, we're, we're going to deal with this subject a bit this week and then more next week, but suffice to say, you have an anointing, John writes to these Christians, and they got it from the Holy One. Who is the Holy One? Well, there, there may be... Uh, some who want to connect us to the Holy Spirit. But the way that the Holy One is used in Scripture actually points to Jesus. And, and there are several verses. I'll, I'll list them for you and, and invite you to look them up uh, during your own personal study time this week. Psalm 16, verse 10. Isaiah 12, verse 6. Isaiah 54, verse 5, Mark 1, verse 12, and Acts 3, and verse 14. Each one of those verses uses that phrase, the Holy One of the Holy One of Israel, and it is in connection to Jesus. But let me give you one just from John. We'll stay in John's writings. And in the Gospel of John, he uses this phrase. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we are told, has some, some hard teaching from Jesus. And the crowds, they couldn't stand it, and they start walking away. 
multitudes. This is, here's Jesus' church growth program, if you will, right? He tells them why they're not believing, and they don't like it, and so they walk away. But he keeps on saying it because it's the truth, and he can do no other. Well, in the midst of this, Jesus looks to his disciples and he says, you guys going too? Uh, verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Notice Simon Peter's answer, verses 68, 69 of John chapter 6. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So when John here, writing in his epistle, says you have an anointing from the Holy One, he's talking about how Jesus has anointed, how the Christ, and what, what's, what does the word Christ mean? Anointed, right? That the anointed one has anointed us. And again, it, it strikes right at the heart of those who want to say, I have an anointing, and unfortunately you don't, but don't worry, those, those illuminated ones. John says, no, no, no. Every, this is true for every Christian. And how do we know that? He says, you all know. That's literally what it says there. You all know. I got to thinking about that phrase there. And I was looking at it in the original language, and I was... I was thinking, well, wait a minute. I think there's a similar statement. Come with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. And, and we saw verses uh, 31 through 34 last week, week before. And we saw the connection there that John makes to the, the new covenant. It's, he doesn't directly quote it. It's what's called an allusion. There's a clear echo here. And one of the things that's said here, this is talking about the new covenant, and so it's yet future for Jeremiah. And, and so the Lord, through Jeremiah the prophet, is predicting something that will come. Notice verse 34 here. Jeremiah 31, 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me. Now, the original here in Jeremiah was, of course, written in Hebrew, but it was translated into the Greek language. We call that the Septuagint. And that was the Bible that the early church used. It was, uh, and again, it depends on who you ask, but anywhere from 80 to 90% of the Old Testament quotations of the New Testament come from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And as I got to looking at that, the verb here is related. It's the same verb. It's just whether or not it's a, uh, whether it's a, what's called a perfect tense, or in this case in Jeremiah, it's a future tense. And why, why would it be future? It's because this is a prophecy. That, that God through Jeremiah is predicting a time under the new covenant when everyone will know God. Every covenant member. You won't have to teach, know the Lord, know the Lord, know the Lord, because we all know him. From the least to the greatest, declares Yahweh, and I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. And I'm persuaded that John is leaning into that. We already, we've already connected the dots between how he has alluded to this earlier, and now here it is again, another echo. Only this time, it's not you will. He's saying, you have come to know and you continue to know. Why is that? You have an anointing. He goes on, he says, 
uh, I write to you, verse 21, not because you don't know the truth, because you do know it. You do know the truth. And so you have all these, again, all John comes right out and calls all these liars that are spreading their false teaching and their false gospel. And John is saying, you know the truth. Therefore, you don't need what they're peddling. Uh, and because no lie is of the truth, of course not. The lie would be what the Antichrist brings in. The lie would be what the deceiver brings in. But truth, truth is what God has delivered to his church. And we continue to possess it even all these years later. And so you have an anointing from the Holy One. You know the truth. That's directly connected to uh, th that anointing. And it, it serves to expose the lies and the errors of these, uh, these individuals who are bringing in this false gospel. And indeed, all they're doing is denying the Father and the Son. Now, and we'll, we'll dig into this more next week, but verse 27 talks about how because you have this anointing and it abides in you, you have no need that anyone should teach you. And now that, that presents a challenge even for us today because, well, if we have this anointing and it, can, it teaches us, why do we need the Bible? And indeed, there are some groups today who make that same argument. Even some so-called strands of Christianity. This is what you'll find if you tune into most televangelists when they come to this text. It's what our, our Mormon friends will say. And in fact, you know, they, they make the argument that well, the Bible, it's, it's, uh, it's actually full of errors, and it's not been properly translated, and therefore, you need this new uh, revelation, a new New Testament, if you will, which is their Book of Mormon. And so what do we do when we come into contact with that? Again, we'll dig into it more next week. But su suffice to say, here, for our purposes today, uh, they, these Christians, they did have this anointing by the Holy One. And therefore, they, they knew the truth, and they continue to possess it. I believe a similar thing is true for us today. Isn't it true that the Father and the Son has sent the Spirit to abide with us? Well, then, what about the Bible? Well, the, of course, the Bible is the uh, Spirit given. These men wrote as the Spirit directed them, right? And so... Uh, when it comes to the new manifestations of these old errors, and we've made the connections between Schleiermacher and uh, the guy who's running around in John's day, that those things still crop up from time to time. We have everything we need to identify and spot the error for what it is, to disregard that and to continue to promote the truth of the gospel. And so it continues today that we all know, and indeed we all know God. God has clearly revealed himself, not only in Scripture, but it's Jesus who came to show us the Father, and indeed he has. And so we know God, we know the Father, we know the Son, and we know the Holy Spirit. Whatever guidance that we are given today is ultimately rooted in the inspired text of Scripture. It all comes back to what has been delivered to us.
by God himself. What has been preserved across time and space. The long history that is there of how you today came to possess even Scripture. And all of it is given, of course, for the purpose of abiding with God. That we know Him. That we live in Him. That we have fellowship with Him. That we continue to commune with the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. And it is because we abide with Him and continue with Him and and we know the voice of our shepherd that we are able to identify light and darkness, truth and error, even life and death. And it is a life and death issue. And so, as it, comes, as it pertains to the Antichrist, there is still this spirit of Antichrist. We, we read in chapter 4 uh, and verse 3, the spirit of Antichrist. It was present in, in John's day. That spirit hasn't gone away. We're not waiting again for some future revelation of the Antichrist, you know, capital A or whatever. But rather, this spirit of Antichrist, which was present in the first century, which the church was uh, combating, which John was writing against in his epistles and in his gospels, that spirit hasn't gone away and it persists even to today. Why we are exhorted to test the spirit. Don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And indeed, there are spirits that are not from God, brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for the clarity of your revelation. That you have clearly shown us the truth concerning Antichrist and even the many Antichrists present in John's day, and of the spirit that continues even to today, we pray, Father, that we would be people so devoted to truth that when error rears its ugly head, we would spot it for what it is, and then by your word, we would, we would work to expose it work to uh, demonstrate that it is not from you. And that in all that, we would do it with love, gentleness, and respect. We thank you for the glorious truth that we who are of you, who are from you, we will continue with you. We will abide with you and with the church. Indeed, Father, help us to love the church and to love one another. We commit all this to you. In the glorious name of Jesus, amen. As you evaluate your Christian walk, my brothers, my sisters, we speak to those who are of us, who are of God. You know, you, you think about your walk with the Lord, and it is good for us to evaluate that, to consider it, to think about it soberly. I, I read these words, and, and even as I was preparing for this lesson, I was thinking about you, my brothers and sisters, the rest camps, 
waves, right? I, I look around and the, the Hintons and Corleys. Those of you who've been walking with the Lord, walk, walking longer with the Lord than I've been alive, quite frankly. What is it? What is it that causes us to persist, to persevere? I mean, we can, no doubt, and maybe you've been going through the Rolodex in your own mind of those who were, who, who once made the profession, at least outwardly, and seemed to walk with us for a time, but then they, they went out, and they have made shipwreck of the faith. They have, they're, they're no longer of God. Rather, their life is tied up. What, what's, what's the difference? And, and again, it's right here. You see, those who are of God are those who are continually evaluating their relationship with the Lord. They're, communi- they're communing with the Lord on a regular basis. And quite frankly, because of that relationship, wild dogs couldn't drag you away. And I praise God for that. But I also exhort us, continue to evaluate your walk. Is there any area of your life, just as you explore your own heart and your own mind, that needs to be submitted to and and given over to God? You see, that's the invitation. You can do it right where you are as we sing the song, certainly. But if you need the strength that comes from God, you know that when rest leads us, that's your opportunity to come forward and express these things that are on your heart and on your mind. And we'll surround you with love and lift you up in prayer to our Father in heaven who delights in helping his children. My friend, you, you hear the, the glory of the church that God has purchased a people in Christ Jesus. But if you have not been born of God, that is born again, if you've not experienced the new birth, The invitation is for you as well. That when Russ leads us in just a moment in the invitation song, that's designed to encourage you to come forward and and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Renouncing sin, confessing it to God that, that you're tired of doing things your way, you want to do things His way. Confessing that you want Christ to be Lord of your life. You are submitting yourself to be baptized, immersed in water, have all of your sins washed away by the blood of Christ, raised to live this new life with Him, to receive the Holy Spirit so that you have the power to live with God on a day-by-day basis, to join with those who are to be of us, which means ultimately to be of God. Again, we can help you with that even today, to become a Christian. Maybe it's something of a, a personal nature that you're struggling with, you want uh, a private setting, one of our shepherds will be available in the conference room. Make your way to the conference room and, and share what's on your heart with one of your shepherds and do the same thing there that we do here and that surround you with love and lift you up in prayer to our Father in heaven. Maybe it's not related specifically to what we've been talking about, but it's something physical or emotional or mental or spiritual that's weighing upon your heart and your mind this morning and you want the prayers that come from your brothers and sisters. You know, again, when rest leads us, that's your opportunity as well to come forward, and, and we'll pray with you about that. The lesson is yours, and the invitation is open. Won't you come right now while we stand and as we sing?